right, everybody, open up your Bibles to Genesis 13. If you don't have a Bible with you, the one in front of you in the pew is available, and we'll be on page nine in that Bible. If you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to take one of those with you. We have plenty. Um, as always, we're going to do a little Q&R after um, I get done talking. So if you have questions at all during um, the message, you can go to slido.com and type in RevCDA in the prompt and uh, ask a question, and we'll interact with those at the end. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Um, as we work through these chapters in Genesis, uh, there's just these, this story is being told of this, this family, and um, sometimes it seems obscure, strange. It's a window into a culture that we don't understand. Um, but it's in here for a reason, for a purpose. You're, you're speaking a word to us through the life of this man, Abram, and God, I pray that as we um, investigate this episode in his life, that, that you would speak to us, uh, teach us about your character, um, convict us of sin, assure us of your grace and your love for us, uh, exhort us to be your lights in the world. I just pray that whatever work you have for each one of us individually this morning, that we would be receptive to that that we would have ears to hear what your spirit says to your church. In Jesus' name, amen. So I, I worked at the, the Croc Center here in town starting in 2009. And uh, when we planted the church in 2018, I continued to work at the Croc Center. And at that point, I was um, the director in charge of what they call the East Wing. So from the cafe all the way down the hall, the theater and all of the, the AV systems and all of the rentals and all of the rooms that get booked out and all that stuff was kind of under the purview of my department. And it was my job not only to um, make sure the day-to-day -day worked, but also to cast vision and to look into the future and plan and, and kind of spearhead this part of the facility. And I loved my job there. It was probably one of the best jobs I've ever had. But there came a time um, about six months into the life of our church that I thought, you know what, I, I don't have enough space in my brain for all of this stuff. Um, because what we were doing at the church was starting this new thing, and there was, there was planning, and there was vision casting, and there was all of, this, um, all of these skills that I was drawing upon, or at least trying to draw upon, that were very similar to the job that I did at the Croc Center. And I, what I realized as I prayed through this is that I just didn't have enough capacity to do both of those things well. And so I left the Croc, and I got a job... Um, at a production company that I could just go to at nine o'clock in the morning and clock in and do my stuff and leave at five and not think about uh, for the rest of the, the week. And, and it, was, it opened up some space in my mental life so that I could give it to the work that God had called me to at the church. And that was a very difficult decision 
because I really loved my job, but I knew in order to go where God wanted me to go, to move to the next thing that he had for me, I had to give up something. I had to set aside something because it had become an obstacle in my life. And so I, I made that decision and, and things have been good for it. But that's the, the major thing that I want to look at this morning in this episode of Abram is this idea of obstacles, that there are things in our lives, and we'll talk about them a little bit more in a few minutes, but they're ju- they just get in the way. And that God might be saying, you know what, this thing, you need to lay this thing down. You need to set this thing aside for something greater that I have for you in the future and what it looks like to trust in the Lord for those decisions. But first, we're going to start at the beginning of chapter 13. We read this. Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all he had and lot with him. And Abram was very rich in livestock, silver and gold. He went by stages from the Negev to Bethel, from the place between Bethel and Ai where his tent had formerly been to the site where he had built the altar. And Abram called on the name of the Lord there. So I mentioned this briefly last week, but um, Abram does something very wise here. He's in the middle of this situation that we read about last week where he goes down to Egypt and he lies about his wife and there's all of this political intrigue and and he actually um, gets to this place where he is um, putting the promise in danger because of his actions. And God intervenes because God is always faithful. But he kind of humiliates himself and his family. And to be in that place where things are not going well, where you are not a great representative of God, there's a couple ways to go there. Sometimes we, we disengage from God when we feel that way. But Abraham doesn't do that. Abraham Abraham goes back to where he came from, to where he met God the first time, where he had built an altar earlier, and he calls on the name of the Lord. Gordon Wenham, in his commentary, says, the narrator is surely suggesting that Abram is trying to recapture his previous experience of God. And I wonder, if, are some of us there this morning that, that you can think back to a life where you had this rich relationship with God sometime in the past, and, and, and it just seems to be gone now? You wish maybe that you could get back to it. Maybe there, there's a couple reasons for why you might feel that way. Um, it's pretty popular right now to do what's called deconstruction, and that can mean a lot of things. But for some of us, maybe we've, we've started questioning some of the things about the faith that we had when we were young. And there's something about the tradition that we grew up in that we found it doesn't fit with what we understand about God anymore. And, and so we've rejected those things. But maybe for you, that's included rejecting the joy that you've always associated with your relationship with God. And, and I just want to say this morning, if that's you, you don't need to do that. The lie is that because there are some things about your faith that you are reconsidering, your past experience with God wasn't real, that you didn't really have an authentic relationship with Jesus because of whatever you no longer believe about your inherited faith, but that doesn't have to be true. 
And if that's you, and if you're, you're wrestling with what you believe, I would just encourage you to go back to the things that you experienced of Jesus back when you had a life-giving relationship with God. Stick to those things. Be aware of those things. Like Abram, go back to where you met with God in the past and be refreshed. But maybe that's not your story. Maybe you're actually more like Abram here. Maybe, maybe you've messed up this morning. Maybe you're really ashamed and humiliated. You've sinned against God. Maybe you've damaged some relationships. Maybe you've misrepresented Christ in the world. And you're feeling this pull to retreat, to ignore, to shrink back from God. My encouragement for you is don't do that. Lean in. Go back to the things that you did when you felt close to Christ. Jesus writes to the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2. He says, I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Jesus rebukes this church because they were doing a lot of really good things and they had this really good position in the community, but their hearts just weren't stirred for Christ any longer. And he says, go back to where you were when you had this experience of relationship with me that was real and authentic. Remember, repent, and repeat the things you did in the beginning. Because we read in in Lamentations chapter 3 that... Because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish, for his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will put my hope in him. Like no matter where you've been, I mean, Abram just sold or let his his wife get sold into marriage with a foreign king. Like that's a pretty big deal. So that's a pretty high bar for sin. But he goes back to what he knows to be true about God. He goes back to this altar where he met with Yahweh before. And God's love for us is new every morning. And so if you're at a place where you're like struggling with what you've done, how you've acted, who you've been, go back to a time when you felt the presence of the Lord and do those things again. Abram calls on the name of the Lord here. We talked about this last week, but this is a statement of allegiance. Allegiance, faith, believing loyalty. Abram has stumbled, he has failed, but he is trusting in Yahweh. And this is what it means for us to be a Christian. We want to be holy people. We want to do good works. We want to serve those in need. We want to have purity in heart. And that is what Christ is forming in us. But we are all like Abram here. We are constantly, consistently failing. We do not live up to the example set by God. But for us as Christians, we do not stop calling upon the name of the Lord. This becomes um, something of of a phrase that Paul uses in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 1, he says, He writes, Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints, with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, 
this category of people, those that call upon the name of the Lord. This is who we are as Jesus' people. Later in Romans, Paul says, for the scripture says, everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame since there is no distinction between Jew and Greek because the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And I hope that that's, that's all of us this morning, that we would say that we are people that have given our allegiance, given our trust to Christ, and not just, not just one time at a church service once where you raised your hand or walked an aisle and like, that, that's it, now I'm a Christian, but that every day this is descriptive of who you are as a person, that you call on the name of the Lord. So Abram has come back to this place where he met with God, and now God has an opportunity for him to walk in faithfulness again. Verse 5, now Lot, who was traveling with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, but the land was unable to support them as long as they stayed together, for they had so many possessions they could not stay together, and they were quarreling between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were living in the land. So Abram gets himself right with God, and there's immediately another test. And we talked about this in the Lord's Prayer series a few weeks ago, that the Christian life contains just a series of tests, of choices, of opportunities. Will you move towards Christ or will you move away from him? And this is, this is the process of what we call sanctification, becoming more like Jesus. And, and this happens on a daily basis. There, there are things that God lays in front of you and you have an opportunity. Are you going to go this way or are you going to go that way? Last time, Abram chose himself. He chose to go his own way, to, to be um, more concerned about his self-preservation than about the heart of God. So Yahweh basically gives him another chance to take the same test. Uh, one of the things that uh, you do when you do uh, commercial video work is if, if you fly a drone, and I think you have to do this for um, hobbyists as well, but back when I was doing this more often, I had to get a license to fly my drone because I was getting paid for it. And um, they came out with this testing procedure, and it was like, you pay $150, and then I had to go out to Spokane, and there was this multiple choice test, and I had to get like an 85%, and if I didn't get an 85%, then I failed, and I had to wait two weeks before I could take it again, and it was another $150. And it was this really high stakes, like, I hope I pass this test. And it was like, you know, how, what direction do airplanes go around at the airport when they're circling? And just all kinds of weird stuff that I would never have any need to know flying a little, you know, remote control aircraft, taking video. But I needed this license. It was stressful. Then I, I finally passed the test, but I had to renew it every two years. And so the next two years later, I had to do the same thing. And I paid my $150, and I made my appointment, and I went out to Spokane, and I, I studied because I hadn't thought about any of those things that I had to study for for two years because I didn't need to know them. But now I was taking the test, and I needed to know them, and I studied, and I passed the test. My renewal came up again last year, but they've changed the process now, where you don't have to make an appointment, 
You don't have to pay $150. In fact, it's free, and it's online. You can do it at your computer. And if you don't pass the test, they just tell you you got question six wrong. Try again. (laughs) And then you go back up to the top and pick one of the other four letters until you get it right. And then they renew your certificate. A lot of us, I think, think our relationship with God is like the first test. There's an opportunity to walk in godliness, to walk in holiness. And if you screw it up, your life is over, or at least for two weeks. You got to lay low. And it's going to be expensive. You're going to have to pay for it. And I don't want to insinuate that there aren't consequences for sin, because there are. But every single day in little ways, God's tests are a lot more like what the FAA is doing for drone pilots now. Here's an opportunity to walk with me, and I chose the wrong thing. And I need to ask someone's forgiveness. I need to repent of my sin. But then I get to do it again until I get it right. Because my relationship with Christ, your relationship with Christ is based on grace, on his love. And when we fail, we're not disqualified by that failure. We're invited to take the test again, to do better next time, to be more like Christ in the future. And so Abram here, he's basically taking the same test, but the words are changed a little bit. Back in verse 10 of chapter 12, we read that the famine was severe. In this chapter, we read that Abram is rich. Those are both the same Hebrew word. I think the author is kind of hinting to us that like these are kind of the same thing, this severe famine and this severe wealth that Abram has are both kind of the source of his problems. They're both weighing him down. We read that there's not enough resources. There's, this promised land isn't big enough for everyone. Circumstances seem like God's promise of of land and offspring and future, like they just don't seem attainable right now. And so the question again is, will Abram trust Yahweh and act in a way that reflects his character, or will he do what seems best for his own interests? Last time in chapter 12, he chose his own interests. This time... He's going to make a different choice. And we see Lot here. Lot is presented in the text as this obstacle to the promises of God. He is in the way. At this point, the story is unfolded in a way to make us think that Lot might be an asset. He actually might be the heir, right? Abram is going to have this great family. Well, Sarah can't have kids, and he's adopted his nephew Lot, so maybe Lot is going to be the source of the promises of God, but not so. Here we see that Lot is an obstacle to God's plan for Abram's life. And these obstacles that get in the way of God's plan for our lives, they don't have to be sinful. They could be. Talk about that in a second. But they're just in the way of what God is doing. 
And Abram loves Lot. Abram, we're going to see in the next chap- chapter, Abram's going to like go on this crazy military crusade to save Lot from some crazy kings. But that doesn't change the fact that right now, Lot and his wealth and his herdsmen and his little mini empire is in the way of what God is doing in Abram's life. When I was in junior high, uh, my friend took me to a uh, youth event. And I think it was the first kind of youth event I'd been to. And the music was loud and awesome, and there were lights. And uh, the, the guy that came up and talked, he talked about idolatry. He talked about things in our lives that we put in the place of God, that get in the way of our relationship with God. And, and I was really, really convicted as a sixth grader for my idolatry because I spent every waking moment of my life thinking about Star Trek. And you laugh, but it was serious. It was the shows. Every day at 4 o'clock, Star Trek The Next Generation would come on, and I would have to watch it. And afterwards, I would call my buddy to debrief the episode. It was the video games. It was the movies. It was the toys. I, I, I went to a Star Trek convention and bought a uh, pattern for a uniform that I expected my mother to make for me, and she never did. It's kind of a sore spot. (laughs) But everything about my life orbited around this TV show, and I could hear the voice of God speaking to my heart saying, this thing is an obstacle in your life. It is getting in the way of what I am doing in you. So I went home from that event, and I stopped watching the show, and I got rid of all of the toys, and I just kind of took it out of my life altogether. Now, was Star Trek sinful? I'm going to say no. You may have a different idea. In fact, it's something that I've brought back into my life now that I'm mature and I can handle that sort of thing. But at that moment, it was an obstacle. And it needed to be getting, gotten rid of if I was going to do what the Lord wanted me to do. Conversely, an obstacle could be sin. I've talked before to some of you uh, just in, in my mid-20s having a, a secret pornography habit that controlled my life. And, and God telling me, you need to bring this out to the, open, to the open and you need to stop it and it needs to be dealt with or we're not going to move forward with the plan that I have for you. This is getting in the way of that. And in that instance, that was sin, and it needed to be repented of and confessed, and, and I needed accountability and help, and it was still in the way of what God was doing. Sometimes this might be people. We see it's, it's a person in Lot's, in Abram's situation. Maybe it's a relationship that you have. It's not a bad relationship. Maybe it's a good relationship, but whether or not it's good, it's just in the way, at least in the way it's working out, of what God wants for you. I was talking with Jackson this week about um, just this idea of toxic people and how it's just super... um, popular right now in kind of Instagram pop psychology to like get all the toxic people out of your life. And he, he made the comment as we were talking that 
we're all ignoring the fact that we're the toxic person, right? <laughs> and I think the, the idea that, that's, that, that we should just remove everyone from our life that's not life-giving, I think that's foolish. I think we're called many times to difficult people. So I, I'm not talking about that. If you just like, if somebody annoys you or they're, um, you just, they're not your favorite person, that doesn't mean you get rid of them. But there are, in certain circumstances, I think, certain groups of people, certain friendships, certain relationships that are just not facilitating your journey with God. And they might be hindering your journey with God. And that might be a really hard thing to think about. Abram still loves Lot. He's going to, like I said, he's going to save his life. Then he's going to pray for him ask for God's blessing on him. But at this point, Lot is an obstacle to what God wants for Abraham. So how is he going to handle this obstacle? Verse 8, so Abram said to Lot, please, let's not have quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen or my herdsmen, since we are relatives. Isn't the whole land before you? Separate from me. If you go to the left, I will go to the right. If you go to the right, I will go to the left. So last time Abram was tested, he responded with self-centeredness and half-truths. Does he do that this time? No, he does just the opposite. He responds with humility. John Chrysostom, who's a, a pastor in the fifth century, he said, he see, see the extraordinary degree of his humility. See the height of his wisdom. The elder, the senior, addresses his junior and calls his nephew brother, admits him to the same rank as himself and retains no special distinction for himself. See, Abram is taking a real risk here, isn't he? He has been given the promised land, the land of Canaan. God has already said, this is the land that I'm giving you. And then Abram lays it out before Lot and says, you pick whatever you want. What if Lot picks the land that God has promised to Abram? Why, why should Abram even do this in the first place? He has no obligation to his nephew. He doesn't need to let Lot dictate the future of the family. And this is a multi-generational decision. Abram and Lot's descendants will both reap the fruits of this decision. You go ahead and make that call, Lot. I'll leave it up to you. See, Abram is making a choice to exercise godly character over and above his own rights as the head of the family. J.I. Packer notes that we grow up into Christ-likeness by growing down into lowliness. Now, I don't want to say that Abram has any direct sense of what Christ-likeness is. This is long before Christ. But he does discern that rather than puffing out his chest and coming up with a plan and looking out for himself, that he should rely on Yahweh and that he should show everyone around him his trust in Yahweh and whatever Yahweh wants to do. He's being open-handed about this decision. He's being humble. He's allowing Lot to choose because he knows that God will ultimately take care of him. 
So how does Lot respond? Verse 10, Lot looked out and saw the entire plain of the Jordan, as far as Zoar, was well watered everywhere like the Lord's garden in the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Spoiler alert. So Lot chose the entire plain of the Jordan for himself. Then Lot journeyed eastward, and they separated from each other. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, and Lot lived in the cities of the plain and set up his tent near Sodom. Now, the men of Sodom were evil, sinning immensely against the Lord. See, it would have been wise and respectful for Lot to say, no, uncle, you choose and I will go where you don't. But he didn't say that, did he? Bill Arnold, in his commentary on Genesis, says, courtesy demands that Lot defer to his uncle, but shockingly, he agrees to make the selection himself. And if we look carefully, we actually see the author of Genesis. We see Moses giving us some clues, setting off some warning bells that this is a problem. This is a real Genesis 3 moment. Remember last week, we talked about how there were different phrases and words and things in the text that led us to believe when Abram goes down to Egypt, that he is walking in the steps of Adam and Eve and their disobedience but that we see the same thing here with Lot. Lot looked and he saw the land, just like Eve looked and she saw the fruit. And what does Lot think that the land looks like? The Lord's garden, the Garden of Eden. Lot picks this whole fertile plain around what we call the Dead Sea. And and we're going to talk more about the geography about this when we get to chapter 19. It's really interesting. But then the text says that he goes east, which is another clue. John Walton says every movement away from God thus far in Genesis has been designated as toward the east. So we're to read this this text and and this story about Lot, and and both explicitly when we hear that he's moving to this place that God's going to destroy. These people are exceedingly wicked, but even implicitly in the word choices that Moses uses, we're supposed to hear Dun, 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 at the end of this text. But we see that it works out for Abram, don't we? Abram takes this risk. Lot could have chosen the promised land. But Lot chooses the valley around Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abram gets Canaan, the land that God had already promised to him. Walton says again, God did not ask Abram to overcome the obstacle. God in his sovereignty removed the obstacle. God didn't tell Abram that Lot was in the way and he should figure out how to get rid of him. He allowed Abram the opportunity to let God work on his behalf. And that required trust. Right? It required Abraham to lay aside his privileges and his power and trust that God was going to act on his behalf. And this is a moment of character growth for Abraham. This is what happens when God presents us a choice and we choose the right path instead of the wrong path. It results in our growth, growth of our character. Paul talks about something similar in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, if any of you had as a dispute against another, how dare you take it to court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? 
as it is to have legal disputes against one another, is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do this to brothers and sisters. Paul is probably thinking about Abraham and this dispute among brothers when he chastises the Corinthians for bringing one another before the Roman courts to settle disputes. And he says, we shouldn't be acting that way. It would actually be better if there is a pro- an unsolvable problem in the church. It's better for one of you to just go, you know what? I'm going to let myself be wronged. I'm, I'm going to take a loss. If it's, if it's money or power or whatever it is, I'm just going to let that go. That would be a better outcome than bringing your, your dispute into the secular courts. And it, with a very similar spirit, Abram says, you know what, Lot? You, we're having this conflict, not so much us, but the herdsmen. I'm just going to let you take the lead, and I'll take what's left. When we get into a conflict with someone, especially with another Christian, our instinct should be to outdo one another in showing honor, like Romans 12.10 says. And when it doesn't go our way, we can still trust that God is sovereign and that he is doing what needs to be done for our ultimate good. And in that moment, if we decide to pursue peace, we are reflecting God's character, which is the whole point of the journey we are on to be made into the image of Christ. James 3 says, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Abram could have instituted a pretty significant war over turf, right? With his family. Could have gone real badly. But he chose to make peace. And with regard to this James text, um, maybe this is a little bit of a rabbit trail, but... The wisdom from above, James said. This, this was a new thought for me this week. The wisdom from above comes from God, right? And I guess I've always just kind of thought about like, that's wisdom for us that comes from God. But the reality is, is if it's coming from God, it's God's wisdom. It's the way God is. It's the way God does things. It's not just the way we are told to act, It's the way God acts. And I just wonder, like, when I think of God, do I think of him as peaceable and gentle and open to reason? Because that's what James says that he is. When you're struggling with understanding something, maybe maybe you're in a situation where there is an obstacle in your life and it's a good thing, but you think you need to give it up and you have questions and you're wondering, why is this happening Do you imagine God saying, well, I'm God and you're not, so just deal with it? I know there's been times in my life where I've thought that way. Do you see him as just this detached deity, like twisting your arm to get what he wants? Is this going to be good for you? I promise. Or do you envision him as a conversation partner, a loving father who wants to help you get more understanding and more wisdom to walk with you through the process, to grow more like him over time. We're going to see it 
in, in our study of Genesis, that God is going to come down to Abraham and Abraham's going to talk with him and be like, you know what, God, I think if you're open to advice, I think you should do it this way. And God goes, okay, let's do it that way. You know, like, do you think of God as someone, not, not your equal, he's not your equal, he is glorious and sovereign and perfect in ways that we can't possibly comprehend or understand, but someone who, just like a parent to a child who wants to involve them in the process, speaks and, and talks and coaxes and, and helps learn. Because that's who God says that he is. And I don't know about you, but I constantly find myself in this position where there is a situation in front of me and I could choose to flex my muscles and push my agenda and wield power to make things happen, usually at the risk of relationship. Or I can choose to step back, to walk in humility, to let God be strong on my behalf. And the thing is, when I do that, God is always faithful when I yield my own will and my own reputation and my own desires to whatever he has for me, he never, ever fails. But when I don't, when I grab for things to protect myself, I usually end up hurting people and misrepresenting Jesus. But Abram makes the right call here. He walks in humility. He lets God fight the battle and God comes out blessing him. So what happens next? Verse 13, after Lot had separated from him, the Lord said to Abram, look from the place where you are. Look north and south, east and west, for I will give you and your offspring forever all the land that you see. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust of the earth, then your offspring could be counted. Get up and walk around the land through its length and width, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and went to live near the oaks of Mamre, at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. The chapter starts with Abram remembering Yahweh and recommitting himself to his God. And it ends with Yahweh remembering Abram and recommitting himself to his promises. God gets more explicit in his promise to Abram about the land and about his descendants. He sends him on a walking tour of the whole land to see everything that he is promising him. And he's, he tells him his descendants will be too many to number. So what's God talking about here? Is he just talking about what would become the Jewish people? It's possible, but I don't think that's what Paul sees here. Paul sees something bigger in God's promise. In Galatians 3, Paul writes, you know then that those who have faith These are Abraham's sons. Now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaim the gospel ahead of time to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed through you. Consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. God's pursuit of Abram, Yahweh's invitation to trust him, to be blessed. This is the relationship that we have with God through Christ. Our faith, our allegiance to Jesus makes us spiritual descendants of Abraham. And I think this uncountable multitude of descendants that God is talking about here definitely obviously includes the actual children that will come from this man and his wife and their family, but it expands 
to include you and me. Paul says it elsewhere in Romans 4. This is why the promise is by faith, so that it may be according to grace, to guarantee to all the descendants, not only to the one who is of the law, but also to the one who is of Abraham's faith. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of God in whom he believed, the one who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. He believed, hoping against hope, so that he became the father of many nations according to what has been spoken. So will your descendants be. I don't know how many of you have grown up in Sunday school, but you know we sing the, the song Father Abraham. And you, you, you come to that song and it's, it's just silly. And you know there's hand motions and stomping your feet and all that kind of stuff because we should do more songs like that, Jackson, where this stomping your feet and hand motions. We'll talk about that. Um, <laughs> but it's really theologically profound, isn't it? Father Abraham had many sons, and I am one of them, and so are you. Not by biology, not by birth, but by faith, because we have become grafted into the people of God in Jesus' grace. God ultimately makes this promise to Abraham good through Jesus. Jesus, a Jewish man, a biological descendant of Abraham, but also God himself, the second person of the Trinity, who who works to open the door for people from every nation to be adopted into the family of Abraham, the family of God, as a gift. In Hebrews 2, we read, for in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. Talking about Jesus. For the one who sanctifies and, the ones, and those who are sanctified all have one father. That is why Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. Again, I will trust in him. And again, here I am with the children God gave me. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these so that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. The author of Hebrews is tracking on the same things as the Apostle Paul. And he connects this faith of Abraham, this trust, this allegiance to God that he demonstrates as this common thread that goes all the way through Christ to us and how we walk in that grace through faith because of Jesus. And think too about how Jesus accomplishes this salvation for us by suffering, by dying, not by standing up for himself, not by using power for his own means, but by humbling himself, by trusting himself to God the Father. Abraham's humility in securing the promise of God in this passage is a precursor to Jesus' own humility in securing the ultimate promise of God for himself. 
And just like Abram, if you're a Christian this morning, this is the path that we're on. As Jesus people, we're constantly stumbling just like he is, sometimes failing spectacularly, and sometimes by his grace, living out the calling that we've been called to. But no matter where we're at today, whether we've come off a week of just like holiness, you know, just all kinds of checking the boxes of morality and ethics and loving our neighbors and, you know, just nailing it, or whether it's something other than that. By continuing to trust in Christ, continuing to go back to Jesus, to back to those places where where we know that he can be found. By his grace, we will inherit the kingdom as sons and daughters. Let's see if we can do some Q&A. In regards to pursuing peace, how should we handle confrontational people Is stepping back from a relationship biblical or is humility always right? I think it depends on what kind of confrontational people we're dealing with. I mean, just sometimes being confrontational is just a personality trait that you just gotta gotta learn to love people who are like really abrupt and direct. It's just who they are. Um, if you have a relationship with them to where you can say, hey, you know, people see you as very confrontational. Maybe you should tone down a little bit. That's helpful. But if you're in a conflict with somebody that's just really unwilling to budge, I think that's one of those situations, you know, we always, whenever the idea of church discipline comes up, it's always really like scary. Nobody likes to talk about that. But if you read through Matthew 18, where Jesus kind of like talk, brings it up for the first time, we always focus on like, if somebody's doing some terrible thing, you bring them in front of the church and like, that should rarely ever happen because the first two steps are like, if you're having a problem with somebody, you should go talk to them about that. And how many of us just don't do that, right? Like we just ignore that part. We talk about them. We, we get angry. We ignore them. We don't actually go deal with the issue. But if you've done that, then Jesus' next step is, you know, if they're, if they're just, if you're trying for peace and they're belligerent and they don't want peace, well, bring a couple other trusted people into the conversation. Bring some people that, that, are, that are unbiased, that, that know and love both of you, that can help kind of work this out. And maybe that's, for this person, maybe that's where you're at especially if they're in the church, right? Because we should all be people that are pursuing peace. And if, you can, if you're someone who's like just not interested in peace, well, then there's bigger questions there. It's not just this presenting argument. It's like, well, how do you understand being a follower of Christ if you're not willing to bring peace into this situation? And stepping back from a relationship biblical or is humility always right? Well, I think... I don't think those are necessarily a dichotomy. 
I think humility is always right. Like, I, I don't think there's ever a time where you can be like, you know, you should really be proud right now. That would be the, the way to go. It's pride. I think we're always called to humility. But sometimes in humility, the thing to, to say is, you know what? This relationship, the way it stands right now, is not good for fill in the blank. Maybe it's not good for you personally. Maybe it's not good for your family. Maybe it's not good for what God is doing in your life. And that doesn't mean you hate that person or you, you, know, you take their phone number out of your phone or you never see them again, but maybe that does mean you have a conversation about the, what your relationship looks like and how your priorities for this season need to change. But if you feel like God is leading you to back away from a relationship in some sense, you always do that in humility, right? To, to come up to somebody and to tell them off, and you're a bad influence and God doesn't want me hanging out with you. Like, don't do that. And again, this would be an, another opportunity to bring um, other people that you can trust into the situation for counsel. More question. If Lot was thinking wrongly, is it okay to give in to him to avoid conflict? Is it always right to be open-handed in such, such circumstances? How to decide? How to decide? The Holy Spirit is how we decide. Godly counsel. I don't know that Abram would have understood that he was thinking wrongly. I mean, I, mean, I think we, as, as uh, you know, sitting in the seat of Moses and being able to read a few chapters ahead and know that Sodom and Gomorrah is a wicked place, um, we see that Lot was thinking wrongly. Um, can we say that Abram thought that he was thinking wrongly? I, I don't know that we can say that. I don't think the text gives us clarity there. I think... God was working in the midst of that situation for Abraham's benefit. And I think what we're supposed to draw from the text is, is Abraham's willingness to set aside his clear rights as the head of the family as an example of humility and see God move in that for his good. Um, to draw out something about Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and his choices in that. Um, I'm not sure that might be a secondary theme that we can read through the Lot's life because we do see him kind of make a, a progression towards Sodom and then he's living in Sodom and then he's apparently a leader in Sodom and it all goes really badly. So I think that's in there. But I don't know that that's the, the burden of chapter 13. And to, to say, is it always right to be open-handed in such circumstances? I don't, I, I don't know that it's always right to be anything in, in most circumstances. Um, I think our character matters. If you're in a situation where, in humility, you can speak into someone's life and say, hey, I see where you're choosing, and I don't think that's a good idea, and here's why. I, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think relationship sometimes requires that kind of thing. You know, if I'm, if I'm making poor choices 
And in the name of humility, none of my friends call me out on them. They're not really acting as my friends. But I don't know that that's exactly, I don't know that that's the burden of the text in, in Genesis 13. And like I, like I said, how do you decide? You pray, you seek the, the spirit of God, you seek the wisdom of other people that you can trust. Um, and then you trust that God's not gonna be silent, that he's gonna direct you. But those are always hard decisions. That's the, I think that's the reason that they're in here, right? Because if, if everything we read about our, our forefathers and mothers in the faith was like, they did this thing and they followed God all the time and it was super easy, yay. Like, that wouldn't be super helpful. <laughs> like, to recognize that, like, this is, this is difficult stuff and to lay your life down for others, to, to trust that God is gonna do a work on your behalf and that you don't have to exercise power to do so. Those are hard things. And like Paul says, they're here for our instruction. So, we're going to take communion together. And so, whether you're here and it's been a, a Genesis 12 week where you've almost, um, you know, sold your wife to a foreign ruler, or it's a Genesis 13 week where you've made the right call and you've walked in humility, wherever you're at, whether you're feeling spiritually high or spiritually low, Jesus welcomes you to his table to receive the gifts of his broken body and his shed blood. We take the bread and the cup into ourselves as a reminder of Jesus' work inside us, that he is the, by the power of his spirit, he is the engine of our lives and that he's making us into people that look like him, people that live like him, that respond to difficult situations like he does. So as the band comes up and we sing, I just encourage you to come down and take the bread and the cup, Jesus' broken body and his shed blood, and, and invite him to continue his work in you this week. Now, he's going to do it regardless. But like I said in the section in James, I think, I think God wants more of a conversation partner in us than we sometimes give him credit for. And I would encourage you to invite Jesus to work in you, to give you opportunities to make choices, to grow in him, and that you would be made aware of that process during the week. You're welcome to sit or stand as we sing, take the communion elements. Uh, when you feel comfortable, you can come and pray at the prayer rugs if you'd like as well. Let's worship together. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.